When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In this final episode of our introductory course, we discuss some strategies for approaching Shakespeare. Whichever of his plays you read, this episode offers ways to enhance your experience. One of the most distinctive and difficult parts of Shakespeare's work is the language. So the first thing to know is that his language doesn't usually reflect how people speak. Not in the 1600s, and certainly not now. It's not supposed to be like ordinary language. It's language elevated into art. So my sense is that people, one of the things people enjoyed about going to the theatre in Shakespeare's time was to have um, an aesthetic experience, particularly a sort of heard experience, which was quite unlike what they heard around them the rest of the time. That's Emma Smith. Professor of Shakespeare Studies at the University of Oxford. So the theatre isn't really realistic. It, it doesn't hold up a mirror to, to people's ordinary lives. It's something heightened, it's something exalted, it's something um, to aspire to, I guess. Uh, it, 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 it always feels, yeah, feels to be a little bit like opera or something like that. That's not you know that, that it, so they're not naturalistic in that way, but the language that Shakespeare uses then uh, is a language of poetry, uh, as well as a language of sometimes a language of everyday speech. Shakespeare wrote much of his drama in poetic verse. We have to listen to it differently than we would read a contemporary novel. Often it's in verse, un, usually unrhymed verse, although not always. Uh, and that verse we call blank verse or iambic pentameter. And iambic pentameter means uh, the pentameter part is um, uh, five, uh, f- what are called five feet in a line. Uh, so, um, and, and the feet go uh, unstressed, stressed, da-dum, 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 da-dum. That's how iambic pentameter is usually discussed. And that means the the stress of the language is is moving is moving along. The the most important um, point in the line is not the first syllable because that's unstressed, but maybe the last one because that's where the energy of the line is going. Try listening for this iambic pentameter, the pattern of unstressed stress five times per line. For example, we can hear it in Romeo's famous line. But soft, what light through yonder window breaks? Or, if I exaggerate it, but soft, what light through yonder window breaks? That's the underlying poetic structure of Shakespeare's verse. Of course, poetry doesn't just mean writing to a metrical pattern. It also means using words in unusual ways. Shakespeare employs lots of figurative language, conveying abstract ideas in unexpected physical images. 
Sometimes those images are so complex it's hard to fully comprehend them on first hearing. But that's fine. You don't need to understand every word precisely. It's just as important to experience them, to experience their rhythm and sound. Sometimes I feel as if the experience of going to a Shakespeare play uh, in performance is more like going to a concert uh, of whatever music you like, really, than it is like going to a lecture. That's to say the words themselves are not the only form of meaning and that sometimes we need them to sort of wash over us and to think this is really beautiful or this is really harsh or this is really um, abstract or this is really romantic or something. We don't need to understand every every single bit. Nobody ever understood all of Shakespeare. Uh, some of some of what's difficult about Shakespeare's language is difficult because we don't have the same words for things or we don't have the same, uh, our language doesn't work in quite the same way. But some of the language is difficult because uh, Shakespeare seems to have invented a word or he's picked out quite a specialised word because he likes the sound of it and he's brought it in or he's on some quite abstract flight of fancy that none of us can really uh, follow um, and nobody who went to the theatre in the 1590s would have been able to follow every single word. So I think people who are getting to Shakespeare for the first time need to be, uh, need to be easy on themselves and, and about their expectations. Another thing to keep in mind is that if sometimes you feel like the language is really hard to understand, that may be exactly the point. I think it's it's fair to say that Shakespeare's language sometimes is difficult, but not always. And that means that sometimes the difficulty uh, is a way that Shakespeare kind of encodes the fact that his characters are not being straightforward. They're choosing to talk in a difficult or convoluted way because they can't be honest about what it is that's that's happening or what it is that they're doing. It's not a deficiency in you. So it's not because you're too stupid to understand what this means. It's that for various reasons, this is quite difficult. And some of those difficulties are often quite useful in understanding what's happening in the play. Just as Shakespeare's language is different from real-life conversation, it's important to remember that his characters are different from real-life people. So a lot of our reading habits or our, our expectations about how stories are told are based on our experience of novels. And novels tend have tended since the 19th century to uh, deliver us and to, and to be the way of exploring sort of psychologically deep or um, complicated characters, characters in, in interaction. So I think the novel is the great, um, is, is the great sort of stage, if you like, for, for character. Sometimes bringing those assumptions to drama and to drama of, uh, of, of Shakespeare's uh, is, is a little bit unhelpful Many of Shakespeare's characters do have the lifelike complexity and psychological depth of characters in novels, but others don't, and they're not meant to. I think then there are lots of characters in Shakespeare who are actually stereotypes, and we tend to think of stereotype as a negative word, um, but I think uh, Shakespeare and Shakespeare's audience are quite interested in those kinds of figures. 
Some characters don't portray a unique personality, but instead represent some larger universal idea. The merry fat knight Falstaff is a memorable character precisely because he's a symbol for comic mirth and appetite. And some characters aren't important for their character or personality at all, but rather for how they help change and drive the story. It would be interesting to think not so much... Uh, how would this character behave if they were a real person in my world? But what would the play be like without this character or if this character were different? You know, why does the play need the character to be this way? And sometimes that produces an interesting turnaround in in how we see Shakespeare as being a little bit more plot-driven than character-driven. So some of Shakespeare's characters are close to real-life people, but some are more like symbols or stereotypes. And others have a structural function. They echo or amplify or bring out different aspects of an idea or another character's personality. So it can be quite interesting to think whether characters on the stage might be um, sort of uh, externalisations, exterior uh, versions of a voice in in your own head that you might be arguing with somebody, which is really an internal argument, but one of the ways to show it on the stage is to put it out onto someone else. In Hamlet, for example, other characters reflect different aspects of Hamlet's personality, different paths he considers following. One of these characters is Prince Fortinbras. Like Hamlet, he has a father who's been killed and... Like Hamlet, he's seeking revenge for his father's death. But he uses armies and decisive actions of war, while Hamlet strikes indirectly at his enemy with a play. When Hamlet sees Fortinbras's army, it's an occasion for him to wonder whether he's pursuing the right course. Should he be behaving more like Fortinbras? It's almost as if Fortinbras is Hamlet in an imagined parallel life, Not a character who's given a lot of personality in his own right, but who gives Hamlet the chance to see a part of himself in action that he hasn't allowed himself to live out. So it's useful to ask yourself how your understanding of some other character would be different without this one. That brings us to a larger question about the play's structure, or how all the elements of the play are put together. One element is plot, Shakespeare's plays often deploy not just one plot, but two. So lots of Shakespeare plays have a, have a, what's called a double plot. So they have a plot and a subplot, and that's one really basic way to look at how do those, how do those interact. Uh, how What usually happens is that they're being alternated at the beginning and then they become intertwined. In King Lear, for example, both King Lear and Gloucester struggle to see the truth about their children. Thinking about their two stories together might help you see new things about each character. Similarly, you might see new things in a scene if you think about other scenes that it is contrasted with. It can be useful, really useful to think, sometimes to step back a bit from a scene and think, uh, what does this look like? Are there a lot of people on stage all yammering away together? Or is this quite a quiet scene or a domestic scene uh, or, or a, a, a solo scene? And then what happens What happens next? Romeo and Juliet opens with a fight in the streets between two feuding families. 
Probably every actor in the company would be on stage. But then the stage clears and that's when Romeo enters. Romeo's quiet, intimate first scene contrasts with the gigantic brawl, just as his love for Juliet will contrast with their family's mutual hatred. Famously, Romeo's love affair with Juliet goes awry because she takes a potion that makes her appear dead. The plan is that Juliet will wake in her family tomb and run away with Romeo. We, the audience, know the plan, but, tragically, Romeo does not. When Romeo sees Juliet and believes that she really is dead, we get a wrenching moment of dramatic irony. Often uh, we talk about uh, Shakespeare using dramatic irony and that's the technique by which audiences know know more than the characters. So um, Shakespeare, we've been talking about how Shakespeare might be difficult, but one way in which Shakespeare is really easy is he does tell us what we need to know. We don't tend to need to work it out in plot terms. So whereas some of his contemporary writers might do a big reveal, a big kind of wow kind of moment, I didn't see that coming at the end. Shakespeare almost never does that. We often think of the ending as the key to the story, the most suspenseful or dramatic moment. But in Shakespeare, that moment tends to come somewhere else. One thing about the way plays are structured, which I've found interesting, is to think about what happens in the middle. So we tend to focus quite a lot on what happens at the end and... Um, you know, clearly, if we're going towards weddings, we're in a comedy, or if we're going towards death, we're in a tragedy, and that seems definitive. But quite often, the very middle of a play, so the middle of Act Three, is a really important scene, a really important encounter, or a really important piece of piece of plot uh, that um, sort of seesaws the play in into the kind of conclusion that it's going to have. When you're reading a play by Shakespeare, look for a climactic scene right around the middle. This is a dramatic moment of action that serves as a point of no return. Until now, we might have been able to imagine different ways the action could unfold. But here, some significant choice is made and the play's future course is set. This climatic moment often helps determine another key part of the play's structure, its genre, Genre refers to the type of story we're watching. In Shakespeare's plays, the basic genres are history, tragedy and comedy. I think uh, the generic labels in the folio are actually quite simple. Uh, If things are getting better and people are getting married at the end, it's a comedy. If things are getting worse and they're dead at the end, it's a tragedy. If it's based on English chronicle sources, it's a history question of genre affects how we appreciate a play, I guess. It affects, it shapes what we expect and our expectations are one of the ways we find a play enjoyable, comfortable, uncomfortable. Um, But I don't think that genre for Shakespeare is fixed. I think almost all the plays have elements, have mixed genre elements. Uh, So I think looking at the ways... um, particularly tragedy and comedy are in tension, uh, are really interesting. Uh, but but in lots of ways, you know, we can have very similar 
um, encounters in both comedy and tragedy. Genre in Shakespeare is complex. His tragedies often include elements of comedy and vice versa. We can find a marriage in a tragedy or a death in a comedy. So as you're watching, think about which characters and plot lines seem to be driving the play towards a comic or a tragic conclusion. At which point does the genre become clear? For how long does it seem like the story could still go either way? Of course, even at the play's conclusion, there might still be elements that seem like they could go either way. Their meaning isn't fully determined. These are elements we have to interpret. When a man proposes to a woman at the end of a play and she is silent, do we interpret her silence as consent or refusal or simply confusion? There are many important questions like that, which the plays themselves don't answer. Where we do find answers is in performance. But what a performance gives is not the answer, it's an answer. And there can be as many answers to the questions in Shakespeare's plays as there are thoughtful performances. One of the things I think I love about Shakespearean performance is the way actors and directors can bring out things that you hadn't noticed or things that you hadn't thought were important or just things that hadn't registered before. And I think once you've watched a couple, um, once you've watched a couple, you can see that uh, there isn't going to be a right or a perfect or a complete version of the play, there are going to be different interpretations which bring out different things and want to want to make different kinds of statements. It's as if the the script for the play has a whole load of potential plays within it. This might seem like an unsettling thought. Do these urgent questions really have no definite answer? But this open quality of the plays the way that each script contains lots of different potential plays is one of the reasons why reading Shakespeare is so rewarding. There's no single right interpretation because there's no single easy answer to the questions the plays ask. What's the best way to pursue political change? What makes a good ruler? What makes a good marriage? Through new readings and performances, we rehearse different answers, different versions of the story, so we can add our own insights to what the plays have to share. The one thing I do feel is that um, directors are not trying to give us the Shakespeare. That's not possible. They're giving us their Shakespeare. And when you read and wonder and question and interpret... When you investigate one answer and investigate another, what you'll find is your Shakespeare. Just as Shakespearean actors and directors create something new each time they produce a version of a play, you too can create something new each time you explore one of Shakespeare's works. And we hope that you enjoy the exploration. Shakespeare for All is written and produced by Maria Devlin-McNair. Executive producer is Zachary Davis. Associate producer and narrator is Gemma Deer. Original music and sound design is by Jack Pombriant. Shakespeare for All is a Lyceum original production and available exclusively on Himalaya Learning. 
You can gain access to the full course by going to Himalaya.com Shakespeare. For this course, information was drawn from and ideas were inspired by the following sources. Jonathan Bate, Shakespeare's Career in the Theater from the RSC Shakespeare series. The Norton Anthology of English Literature, Volume B, 8th edition. Michael Hathaway's A Companion to English Renaissance Literature and Culture. Emma Smith's The Cambridge Introduction to Shakespeare, and This is Shakespeare. For full details on these sources, see our course webpage at shakespeareforall.com. Thank you for listening. See you next time.